1: Welcome to PIs Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler.
0: Good morning. P.I.S. Declassified has had a short hiatus for the past uh, three or four weeks and we're back and uh, I have Rich Robertson on the line with me today. We're going to be talking about justice 35 years too late. Next week will be the 50th anniversary of the murder of Joyce Sterenberg and Tim McKillop, where they were murdered in Scottsdale, Arizona, 50 years ago next week. Twelve years later, Carol McCumber, the estranged wife of a man named Bill McCumber, told the police that her husband confessed to the killing. The problem, she was an employee of the Sheriff's Department with access to cold files. McCumber, besides being a single father of three, was an Army veteran, a Little League coach, and a member of the Sheriff's Search and Rescue Posse. Well, Bill was tried and convicted in 1975, based mostly on fingerprint evidence. So one of the problems is that the jury never heard about a confession of a drifter who confessed to the murder several years earlier. Is it a surprise that Bill's wife might have abused her position at the Sheriff's Department and tampered with evidence in this Cole case file? McCumber is now 76 years old. He served 35 years of his two life sentences. The Arizona Justice Project, assisted by private investigator Rich Robertson, who is with me this morning of our 3 Investigations, has been working on this case for nearly a decade Well, the Arizona Executive Board of Clemency unanimously recommended that his sentence be commuted because of the overwhelming exculpatory evidence. However, in 2009, Arizona's Governor Jan Burrow rejected the Clemency Board's recommendation, and Bill sits in jail today, still. So today I'm welcoming welcoming Rich Robertson who's here to tell his own journey into the depths of this old case and how the Justice Project pulled all the facts together. Good morning,
2: Rich. Hey, good morning, Francie.
0: Thanks for joining me today. You bet. Uh, Folks, let me just tell you a little bit about Rich. He's a licensed investigator in Arizona and owns, as I said, R3 Investigations. He's been the lead investigator on hundreds of complex criminal and civil cases, including numerous death penalty cases and at trial. Sentencing and post-conviction levels. He was former, formerly an Arizona print and broadcast journalist for 28 years, and his journalism experience includes being a member of the investigative team and subsequently the city editor during his long 20 years, 20-year 20 stint with the Arizona Republic newspaper. He was the editor of three projects that were finalists for the Pulitzer Prizes. In addition, he is an Emmy award-winning investigative reporter for Arizona's KPHO-TV and KPNX-TV. Rich is the past president of the Arizona Association of Licensed Investigators. He's currently the editor of a trade magazine called the Legal Investigator Publication of the National Association of Legal Investigators. He's active in the Justice Project. He's an associate member of Arizona Attorneys for Criminal Justice. He's the past president and member of the board of directors of the First Amendment Coalition of Arizona, a very important organization, and for over 10 years was Arizona's public records chairman for the Society of Professional Journalists. I'm really happy to have you um, with me today, Rich. How did you become involved in the McCumber case?
2: Well, I started um, after I got into my journalism career uh decided to retire from that and become a private investigator. One of the first people I met was the head of the Justice Project, uh, an attorney named Larry Hammond. And uh, this case, uh, he it was just getting started on with the Justice Project and asked if I would be uh, interested in working on it. So this became actually either the first or the second uh, case that I ever worked on as a private investigator. And, and I've been working on it ever since.
0: Now, yeah, well, wasn't, excuse me a second, wasn't Hammond, uh, didn't somebody say to Hammond, um, well, why don't you go work on this? He was just starting the Justice Project. Why don't you try this case, check on this it, one? It was
2: among the first. Uh, uh, the Justice Project had been uh, in existence prior to to this one, but, but this was among the first uh, cases that they had taken on. That's right. And, and the Justice Project is a collaborative, uh, uh, project of the Arizona State University School of Law. Uh, so law school students, uh, are primarily the ones involved in this, uh, along with volunteer attorneys and, and other allied professionals such as investigators, uh, work on a variety of these cases together. So, uh, in, in a large measure, it's, it's volunteers working with law school students to re-examine these cases.
0: Most people know this kind of an organization is the Innocence Project. So it would be the same. That's right. Same thing. Sure. Okay.
2: Exactly. And and there are lots of these around the country uh, that uh, do um, Innocence Project work. Uh, there's notably some journalism organizations around the country that have done some outstanding work. Uh, the Innocence Project is uh, out of New York. The uh, Barry Sheck and uh the company, they, they are probably the most notable. And they focus a lot on DNA cases right. uh, to bring uh, to light a lot of the, the problems in the criminal justice system uh, using DNA as a vehicle. Uh, the Arizona Justice Project, on the other hand, doesn't focus exclusively on DNA and looks at uh, cases from a variety of different perspectives. And it's not just a case, cases of actual innocence. It's also uh, we look at uh, cases that are referred to as manifest injustice. Um, we've looked at, uh, for example, uh, uh, a number of cases where uh, women had been charged with murdering their husbands, uh, even though they were the uh, subjects of domestic, uh, severe domestic violence, and mm-hmm. re-examined those as as basically self-defense cases.
0: Well, and so how um, how did you actually get involved? Did you knew Larry Hammond?
2: Right, I did. Uh, Larry's a pretty prominent guy here in uh, Arizona and, and nationally. He's he's well respected in the in the areas of broad policy areas of the criminal justice system and particular capital cases, uh, death penalty cases.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, I'm assuming that he'd been a long-term uh, criminal defense attorney before he got involved in the Justice Project.
2: Yes, he's been a criminal uh, defense attorney uh, with a law firm called Osborne Maladon here in Phoenix. He's one of the uh, founding partners of that firm. Has uh, been around a long time and and going way back. Uh, in his early days, he was on the uh, uh, Watergate prosecution team. Oh, was he? The, back in the '70s. He's wow. an interesting guy. Real interesting guy.
0: Okay, well, and then how did the Justice Project, uh, how did they start out with this case?
2: Well, as, you know, I'm not even sure how this came to their attention. Uh, these cases come to the Justice Project in a variety of ways, so I'm not even sure how this one actually came to the Justice Project, but once it did, uh, the put together a team uh, to try to uh, gather as much information as they can about it and make some evaluations about whether or not there's anything that can be done with it. So as an investigator, they came to me and said, you know, we're dealing with, uh, at that point it was like 40-year-old information, it's now 50-year-old information. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to go back in time and find as much as we can about this case uh, from the beginning. And, and, of course, that meant digging up police reports and and locating evidence and finding uh, kind of we call it the where are they now kind of investigation where you go through the list of witnesses uh, and people that testified at trial and people who didn't testify at trial, you know, everything about the case. You just gather all the information, figure out where is the information now, where are the people now? And uh, and and of course, as you might expect in a lot of this, uh, a lot of these people are deceased.
0: I'm sure. And, mm-hmm. and and you know, for people that have never been involved in the investigation of a of a case of this magnitude, just yeah. the records gathering, the trial transcripts gathering probably there were was it there was two trials, I believe, right?
2: Right, so right before nineteen seventy six.
0: Okay. So there's two trials, which means trial transcripts and Correct just reading transcripts is a lot and then gathering probably any record that had to do with him or the case or anybody else involved. It's it's such a huge, overwhelming project.
2: It is. Uh, and, you know, I, I get, doing a case like this <clears throat> uh, from now five decades ago is more like doing archaeology. Mm. Uh, it's pretty amazing if, to think about uh, some of the things that were, and the procedures uh, that were different, and the lack of record keeping uh, was was a big problem in this case. Interesting. And the the, uh, the one thing that about this that, that I know occurs uh, nationally as well is is in death penalty cases where these uh, defendant has been sentenced to death, their cases are basically ongoing right up to the very minute uh, of their execution and so nothing is thrown away it's just or discarded in any way so when you work on a post-conviction case uh, of a death penalty defendant uh... those records typically they may not be well organized but they're out there and the courts don't get rid of evidence uh, there's all kinds of steps in a death penalty case
3: mm-hmm.
2: <clears throat> Um, in this case, however, Bill McCumber was not sentenced to death. He was sentenced to two life terms, and which meant that he was uh, they were natural life terms. So it, it went through a different kind of appeals process, and once those appeals were exhausted, which occurred in the late '80s. Uh, it was 10, 15 year process just to go through those appeals. Once they were over with, as far as the courts and everybody was concerned, this was a closed case. Right. And, and the, one of the first things we discovered was that the court had destroyed all of the physical trial exhibits that had been entered into this case. Uh, this uh, yeah. introduction fingerprints were the primary evidence. And in this matter, in the late '80s, I found a document in the court uh, that said that they had destroyed all the physical exhibits, and among those were the original fingerprint cards.
0: Wow! This so, is—hang oh, oh, on, Rich. This is a good time to take a <clears> short break. You bet. Uh, we'll turn shortly with Arizona PI Rich Robertson.
1: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do—is talk. Yeah. Listening to PI's Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to FRANCIE at PI's Now, here's Francie Kaler.
0: Yesterday was the lead investigator for Arizona's Justice Project on the controversial Bill McCumber case. Rich, you were just telling us about looking for fingerprint cards.
2: Right. Well, the fingerprint cards and uh, some bullet shell casings and a variety of other physical evidence that was uh, central to these convictions uh, were in the uh, court case file as exhibits and the originals, of course. And uh, they were ultimately destroyed by court order during housekeeping of the clerk's office. Yeah. The late 80s. So when we got into this case right around 2000, uh, these exhibits, the physical, the original evidence items had been gone for a dozen years. And so uh, it it very much complicated uh, the investigation to be able to to have to try to reinvestigate a case without the original physical evidence.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's been one of the big stumbling blocks in this case.
3: Hmm.
2: I can tell you a quick story about what we had to do. Please do. Um, <laughs> the, it was kind of one of these. Uh, I, I've been around Arizona since the uh, mid-60s. I came here uh, in the mid-60s a few years after this original uh, homicide occurred. Um, and and so <clears throat> I've been covering news in this area for three decades. I got to know a lot of people. And so as I'm reading these police reports from 1962, I actually recognized um, a variety of names. The lead, the lead uh, investigator on the uh, case was a guy named Jerry Hill. He was a lieutenant. He later became the sheriff of Maricopa County uh, Sheriff's Department. He was a uh, longtime sheriff, so I actually knew him. Hmm. Uh, as I was reading it, the crime scene photographer uh, and the guy who was also the latent prints examiner, I was particularly interested in these fingerprints, uh, was a guy named Jerry Jacka. <clears throat> and I thought, how many people are named Jerry Jacka? I, I recognize that name from some news stories. And I knew him as a pretty well-known, famous photographer for a, uh, a, co- a coffee table magazine called Arizona Highways. Huh. specialized in Indian photography. And so I called him up. I had interviewed him several times as a reporter. And so I called him up and said, Jerry, uh, did you work for the sheriff's office in the, <laughs> early 60s? in the early 60s? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, I was a young guy. He said, that's where I got started with photography. I was taking, you know, crime scene pictures. And I said, I said, well, I'm working on this case. Do you remember it? And he said, yeah. I said, well, you know, I, I've been to your house. I, I know you're kind of a pack rat. He said, by any weird chance, did you keep anything about this case? And he said, God, I have no idea. He said, I'll look around. And then I sort of forgot about it. Five months later, he called me up, and he said, I was digging around in a storage unit, and lo and behold, I came up with a file folder full of copies of the fingerprints.
0: Oh, my goodness.
2: He had made photocopies at the time of these fingerprint cards because he had to testify at trial, and so he was using those basically for notes, and he you know, left the courtroom that day in 1974 with the file folder, stuck in a storage unit and there it sat until just you know for another 25 years until i happened to call up and say you have it
0: what a stroke of luck
2: so you know you can't be good be lucky
0: <laughs> absolutely <laughs> okay so so then what happened
2: so uh you know that was kind of among the many things of trying to assemble these uh a lot of a lot of serendipitous uh kind of kind of cases were trying to uh just stumble across things that might be available. And we had to, you know, police reports were scattered throughout the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office. It seemed like every time we made a request to them over about a eight year period, we would come up with new documents, uh, that sent us down different paths. But among the most important things that we came across, uh, were, were two, uh, people who, uh, had confessed to law enforcement of having had some involvement in this, in this homicide. Two one, was, Yeah. Two people. Yeah. Uh, one was an 18 year old girl who, who surfaced uh, some days after the homicide and said that she'd been out there uh, with a party crew. They were doing drugs and a variety of things and that they had encountered these people in the desert, thought they might have uh, some drugs or money and, and that uh, they wound up a uh, guy that was with her, uh whose name she didn't know, she described him, uh had killed these two young people.
0: And is it, this was this person Linda Primrose? It was. Okay. Yes.
3: Okay.
2: And uh, Linda uh was uh, kind of an incorrigible youth in those days they they uh they had what they called the you know school for wayward girls. Uh she was a resident of one of those <clears throat> and and she said that uh, this guy had had killed these two people and she had witnessed it. Mm. Law enforcement kind of looked into that and, uh, and didn't find it credible for a variety of reasons. Uh, but some years later, then uh, a defense attorney uh, had a client uh, named Valenzuela. And it turns out that Mr. Valenzuela physically matched the description that Linda Primrose had given. And he confessed to his lawyer, uh, Tom O'Toole, that that he had committed this murder. Uh, he was a lifelong criminal, in and out of trouble, lots of drugs, and uh, he told his lawyer that he had uh, committed this crime.
0: And of course, and, that information is protected by attorney-client privilege.
2: And, and his description of what he did was very similar to what Linda Primrose had described. Mm-hmm. But right, uh, the the privilege, uh, when, when your client, when your de- client, uh, who's a defense criminal that tells you something about something he did in the past, uh, that's privileged and you can't, as an attorney, the, you can't just go out and, and report this information. Well, Valenzuela was convicted of completely unrelated matters, wound up in federal prison and wound up dying in federal prison in the, in mid seventies, right around the time that McCumber was being uh, prosecuted. Hmm. And so there, Tom O'Toole uh, was disturbed by having this knowledge of somebody confessing to a crime that now somebody else was being accused of. And he tried like the Dickens to uh, uh, wrestle with the ethics of all that and, and consulted with ethics experts and everybody kept telling him that he could not breach that privilege, even though his client was deceased. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, years went by, and when the Justice Project got involved, he finally said, heck with it, and he, uh, revealed all this in the form of affidavits and others. By, now, this,
0: by I, this Let time, me yeah. interrupt, let me interrupt you for a second. So, so Tom O'Toole, uh, by that time, was he a judge or not?
2: He was, yes. Uh, Tom O'Toole was a, uh, a judge in the Maricopa County Superior Court, uh, well respected long-time judge. He recently, a few years ago, retired, but at the time he revealed all this uh, information, he was still a judge.
0: And was he at all um, disciplined for that?
2: Not at all. Uh, Interesting. There, you know, there hasn't been any repercussions on it. Uh, it's it's one of those uh, difficult things. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's no nothing adverse can occur to his client, who's now deceased, and and certainly there's uh, questions of whether or not uh, an injustice has occurred to somebody else as a result. So uh, I think most people would believe that this kind of information probably should be disclosed in some Yeah,
0: way. I'm, I'm just thinking that there's, uh, there was a case back east someplace uh, in the last couple of years where that similar situation happened, and those attorneys were greatly sanctioned. In fact, yeah, there I, was a problem with the bar card, I think.
2: Right. Uh, There's these types of situations surface uh, uh, fairly frequently. I I think you could do a whole show just on the issue of of, of ethics and how they interfere with justice sometimes. Mm
0: -hmm. Wow, what a big risk. I I just can't. uh, He's a sitting judge and he he really took the chance of losing his career.
2: Right. It probably helped that he was a sitting judge.
0: Yeah, probably so. That's (laughs) probably true. Okay so go ahead.
2: Okay so uh <clears throat> so obviously our focus uh, was on Valenzuela and uh and Linda Primrose uh in going back to the investigation part of the where are they now uh discovered that Linda Primrose had died uh back in around 1990. Oh no. And she had a family uh I met them they uh she had, had married she she very much turned her life around and, and uh, from her uh, kind of hell-raising days. But she did, re- and shortly after having made this uh, statement about what had happened, she did recant uh, and say that she told these, this story to uh, get her, uh, to upset her parents. The, the two victims, in this case, uh, Joyce Sternberg and Tim McKellips, had been employees of the local phone company, and uh, Linda Primrose's father was a top manager at that same phone company. And so she uh, said that that was her motivation was to uh, create problems for her father, who she disliked. Uh, she stuck with that recantation. She did not testify uh, in the first trial because she invoked her Fifth Amendment rights. Even though she recanted, she, uh, she invoked. So mm-hmm. she did not testify uh, in that, and um, and so the jury didn't get to hear the, that kind of story. And the juries never got to hear about the confession of, of Valenzuela because of that it had not been revealed to uh, to anybody at that point. Interesting. <clears throat> and so there, there was a big element of the stories that uh, that never got test uh, never got heard, uh, and and so that's been an area that we've been exploring. She recanted. I've uh, talked to her family. Uh, one of my d- disappointments uh, is, was that uh, she kept a scrapbook, according to her daughter, uh, about the case. Okay. The, Linda Primrose kept a scrapbook, and the daughter has that scrapbook. So this is a 50-year-old scrapbook about the murder, and the family will not produce it. Oh, that's stupid. uh They, they considered private, private. Uh, their mother recanted. She went to her death, uh, still contending that she was not involved. Uh, and uh, and so the family uh, is trying to you know preserve her privacy interest and uh, and her reputation. So, uh, you know whether she she certainly didn't commit a murder. Uh, right. She may have had the misfortune of, of having been there, and we just don't know.
0: And I guess she could have been charged in some way as an accessory or something <laughs> like that.
2: In theory, yeah, yeah, yeah. felony murder uh, or. Right. You know, if you're present when a murder occurs, and you in theory can be charged with it as well.
0: And then, tell us about uh, Carol McCumber.
2: Yeah, uh, they Carol McCumber and Bill McCumber had a pretty contentious uh, marriage. Uh, they was falling apart in the in the mid '70s, and uh, both of them. He was he was not an employee of the sheriff's office, but he was a volunteer, so they were well known within the, the sheriff's office. And Carroll was a an employee uh, <clears throat> in what was called the Identification Bureau, and that was where they maintained uh, criminal records. And among the records that were uh, available there was this cold case, uh, this uh, 1962 homicide. And by the way, it, this was a very high-profile case in this community, a double homicide of this uh, young couple that were about to be married uh, really struck a, a chord in the community and and Phoenix in those days was not the, the big city it is today and so uh, it was a pretty outrageous uh, uh, seemingly senseless crime so it got a lot of publicity mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. and there would be anniversary stories in the local newspapers about uh, the unsolved case and so this was a high profile and the records of all of that were maintained in this unit where Carol McCumber worked we have since gathered uh, affidavits as part of our investigation that showed uh, that purported that uh, where we talked to others who worked there a couple of associates of carol mccumbers who said that yes uh, they looked at this particular file and they would spend down times looking at uh, at this file among others so you know, we can show that that she was certainly aware of the details of this case Well, she had um, an affinity, it it seemed, uh, for men in uniform, and uh, she had a a number of relationships uh, with people in that sheriff's office to the point where it was creating uh, problems internally, and the sheriff was about to fire her.
0: Okay, let's hang on a second. We need, we do need to take another break. Okay, uh, PIs do classified. Be right back with private investigator Rich Robinson. Stay tuned. Rob Bertson.
3: Sorry that's about that.
0: Stay fair. tuned.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. IRB Search is simply the best online data provider for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB Search gives you strength in numbers with one click. You can access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified and you'll receive a two-week trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1 800-447-2112 to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787 1-866-472-5787 VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler.
0: I'm sure those of you that are out there listening are thinking are not sure whether justice has worked in this case or whether it hasn't worked in this case. Uh, Justice doesn't always work the way it's supposed to. Rich Robertson, private investigator from Arizona, is here to talk about the Bill McCumber case. And Bill, you were just telling us about Carol McCumber and her involvement with others at the sheriff's department.
2: Right. Uh, You know, the basically she was uh, her job was in jeopardy and. in the mid seventies and she was uh, on the verge of being fired by the sheriff when she said, Oh, wait a minute. By the way, my husband may have uh, been involved in this crime. And she went on to tell, say that uh, she remembered, this would have been 1974, she remembered that he came home one night in 1962, 12 years prior with some blood on his shirt and a story about having gotten into a fight uh, with some unknown juveniles and that uh, during their Marital breakup here in the, in the early seventies that he had confessed to her that she, uh, that he had, uh, killed these, uh, two young people, the Sternberg and McKillops. Hmm. And, and so that started the investigation. And so they brought him in for questioning and, and, uh, asked him to, uh, you know, produce a palm print, their fingerprints and palm print, which they were then ran to the identification bureau, pulled the crime scene latents, uh, the fingerprints there, and compared them and said, it's a match.
0: So is, so, it, is okay. it the allegation that Carol McCumber somehow planted fingerprint evidence?
2: That's, that's the theory, yes. Uh, she had access to it. Uh, she was, uh, ironically, taking fingerprint classes uh, at the sheriff's office uh, just before all this happened. Uh, she had practiced taking uh, fingerprints, uh, with Bill, uh, as a subject, as you do in your fingerprint classes, you have somebody else, uh, you know, yeah. you roll, roll their prints. Well, she had done that with Bill. Right. And then, amazingly, this stuff comes up. Now, there's lots of kind of forensics that you could, should do to be able to figure out, uh, whether or not, the uh, you know, the tape, the fingerprint card, the ink, all these kinds of things were available in 1962 to try to fi- determine whether or not these were done later than 1962 and then in theory planted but now you can see why it became so important that those physical evidence, the original fingerprint cards having been destroyed in the 80s became so important for sure and I should say you know in, in reference to Carol uh, and we and I deliberately not used her current last name uh, she went on after this conviction she went on to uh, continue to work in law enforcement in another state. And, uh, and retired from law enforcement. So she stayed in law enforcement the, the whole, the whole time. Mm-hmm. She now lives, uh, um, elsewhere in the country, but, uh, she has staunchly, uh, right up and in, in including testifying at the clemency hearings, uh, in recent years, uh, she has staunchly denied all of these allegations. She, uh, insists that Bill confessed to her. Uh, she denies that she, had anything to do with planting any kind of evidence, uh, she certainly scoffs at the idea that she could have even done that. Uh, so, um, you know, it's it's definitely one of those things. And as you said, you know, you're sort of left with this uneasy feeling of not knowing one way or the other, and that's mm-hmm. really where this case is. You know, in a lot of ways, you just uh, you really don't know. There's only one person, frankly, right now, who does know, and that's Bill McCumber. And he's been insisting for uh, from the very day he was arrested in 1974, uh, he has uh, insisted that he is innocent.
0: Hmm. What a scary thing.
2: (laughs) And, and, you know, uh, in the 50 years, there's there's another aspect of this that I think your listeners might be interested in is the fact that uh, the forensics have changed. Uh, Criminal investigations, as we know, have evolved considerably, particularly with DNA uh... and in this particular case there were a couple items that could have been important uh... in particular there was a handkerchief found at the crime scene that was not did not belong to either of the victims and law enforcement at that time there was newspaper articles that mentioned this handkerchief and uh... and some speculation that this handkerchief in fact belonged to the killer Uh, just because of where it was and kind of its condition uh, the the detectives on the scene initially determined uh, in their beliefs that that this belonged to the killer well if we in 2012 if we were confronted with with that uh that the first stop for that handkerchief would have been a DNA lab right and uh but in 1962 uh no one even was dreaming of DNA and so the only testing that was done on that handkerchief uh was an attempt to determine if there were any fingerprints on it. And that was pretty much impossible. I mean, or not impossible, but it's, uh, nothing was found on that handkerchief. And there was, you know, like one sentence of testimony about it in the trial saying, you know, we attempted to get fingerprints off of it and we, and we couldn't find it. Well, one of the beauties of DNA is that, uh, that it, it can stay uh, on there for uh, decades, if not hundreds of years. They've done DNA testing on. So if that handkerchief were available today, we still could have done that examination and possibly determined uh, that, say, Rudy Valenzuela's DNA might have been on it. But among all of the evidence items that has disappeared over the years is that handkerchief.
3: Wow.
0: Well, and, and was, was it only the fingerprint evidence and Carol McCumber's testimony that convicted Bill McCumber?
2: uh there was one other uh, major element of of evidence and that had to do with uh some shell casings and uh there were some sh- shell casings found at the scene from a uh from a 9 millimeter. and the uh uh the testing that was done on that uh, they they went out and seized uh, Bill's gun in 1974 so again this was 12 years after the fact mm-hmm. and they uh an FBI analyst said that the tool marks on the shell casings, which are the things like the, the marks that are left on shell casings by extractors. Uh you know, when you when you uh rack a gun and it flips mm-hmm. the shell out and flips it out, there's a there's a an extractor, it's a piece of metal inside the gun that, that catches the rim of the of the shell casing and and throws it out the side of the gun. And it leaves scratches uh, on on a shell casing, and so they examined those so-called uh, tool marks on the shell casings and concluded that uh, it was it matched his gun. Uh, now, Bill McComber's gun had been used many, many times in the 12 years since he was a part a member of the sheriff's posse. He fired that weapon quite a bit. Uh, guns change over time uh, for a lot for obvious reasons. It changed out the barrel on that gun uh, and a variety of other things. Um, and and so uh despite that they said that the tool marks uh matched and that was FBI testimony. Now that's another area that has changed over the last fifty years. The whole uh people watch CSI and they, they think that uh that they can look at two items like this, it's called comparison evidence look into items and uh, conclude conclusively that these two uh, match. Well those that has been kind of repudiated. Uh, there's a lot of questions and in particular the FBI uh, ballistics evidence has been challenged uh, a lot in, in recent years and they don't testify about the kind of ballistics uh, evidence and tool marks in particular that they used to. And so that's an area that has changed a lot. And If that, that was able to be relitigated, because all of the again, those evidence are gone, uh, well, a current scientific examination would probably conclude something different.
0: And that's even changed in the past few years. Absolutely, just in the past, I think five or six years, maybe.
2: Right. Yeah, the National Science Foundation uh, report on forensics uh, uh, questioned a lot of this kind of evidence, and and uh, it is really uh, just, just the language of forensics has changed in the last few years. You just don't, you just don't walk in and say that shell casing came from that gun. It's a match. You talk about characteristics, uh, you talk about similarities, uh, and things like that, but it's, uh, they're much more cautious now about claiming that things match. And so if that was, had an opportunity to relitigate that today, uh, the ballistics evidence we think would be very different. But again, it's an area that can't be, uh, challenged uh, definitively because those original shell casings are gone.
0: And Rich, do you believe in Bill McCumber's innocence? Factual I, innocence?
2: I, I do. Uh, you know, it's, but probably more importantly, and, and this is true, uh, for criminal defense in general, is, is that, um, I'm not convinced that he got a fair trial right. either. and that there was a significant uh, evidence that was not heard uh, that there was significant evidence that, that was mispresented. Even, you know, it may have been valid by 1974 standards, but by today's standards uh, would be different. And, and you, so you wonder, should a defendant uh, be, given an opportunity to keep bringing his case back as forensics change or as new mm-hmm. information comes forward. And there are provisions for that in, in post-conviction. Uh, but, but in a case like this, it's, it's virtually impossible because you have a lot of theories and a lot of uh, uh, things that kind of support that theory, but it's not definitive like DNA. Right. Uh, and, and, and so he, the courts are and governors are very uncomfortable with reversing convictions uh, on on the basis of strong belief. Sure. And sure. so it, it's a it's a real dilemma in innocence investigations and uh, and probably more importantly for people like Bill McCumber, who has now been sitting in in prison for the last uh, since the last 35, 40 years uh, and will starting to look like, in all likelihood, uh, a die in prison for a crime that, that there's lots of questions about whether he committed.
0: Okay. We're going to take another break, Rich. Rich Robertson, an Arizona private investigator, is telling a tale of helping the Arizona Justice Project try to exonerate Bill McCumber. We'll be right back. Rich Robertson is telling us about his experience working on the Bill McCumber case, a very controversial case in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, Scottsdale, Arizona, and working with the Arizona Justice Project. And I just want to um, say, Rich, I know that uh, you spent 10 years on this case. All of this was volunteer time. You didn't get paid for a cent, right?
2: That's right. And.
0: So with the Arizona Justice Project as well, this is some, something they took on because they believed in Bill McCumber. They believed that there was something wrong with the case, whether he was uh, factually innocent or whether it was uh, completely miscarried to justice because uh, his case wasn't presented originally correctly. Right.
3: right.
0: Um, and because we all know it's not, uh, a lot of people today think that if you're arrested, you're guilty. Uh, at least that's what i find in california right. you're arrested you're yeah. guilty but uh that's not actually true and it's up to the prosecution uh to to prosecute the case and show and the burden of proof rides with them right so and it sounds except like po-
2: except in post conviction
0: yeah. except in post conviction right that's right that's right so go ahead with um, what you were talking about rich
2: well it's it's um the justice project and uh, this justice project and others around the country uh, uh certainly it's important to pursue these kinds of cases even if you are unsuccessful because it it raises a lot of awareness about issues uh, in in the justice system whether it's uh you know some of the things we've talked about here and and uh, kind of the broader policy issues that come out of these things and so it, it is, uh, important to, to keep looking at these in, in the past and see where justice, uh, potentially has gone wrong, uh, or could have been done better. And there has been enough people wrongly convicted and, and that's been shown in a variety of ways, particularly with DNA, uh, that it has raised people's consciousness. Mm. Uh, and frankly, these CSI shows, uh, have done a lot to raise people's consciousness, uh, as well and, and raise their expectations about it and, and the so-called CSI effect where jurors come into cases thinking that uh, what they see on, on television, uh, is accurate and that, that forensics is the, the answer to everything. Uh, and it turns out it's a lot more difficult than that both for the prosecution and the defense it's uh, uh so it's these are things that uh have constantly have to be uh, talked about and reviewed and uh, considered and hopefully uh the next person that gets charged will benefit from the analysis that occurred on a prior miscarriage of justice
0: well and it acts, and it goes to the heart of our constitution as well yep. um, yeah. we sometimes forget about the constitution the United States constitution but I can remember uh, a number of years ago I was I was actually in another country and speaking to an investigator from that country um, who was very proud of herself that she uh, because in that country the investigator works both for the defense and the prosecution side
3: right.
0: okay. and she was very proud of the fact that out of the 500 cases that she had worked on in her career, not one of them had been exonerated. <laughs> so I thought, well, that's a little different than what we have in the United States.
2: Yeah. I, I, as a criminal defense investigator, I, I, people have this, this idea that criminal defense's uh, job is to get the guy off. Right. And and that really isn't true. It's, uh, it's to it's to make sure that the constitution is protected. I, I sort of, yeah, I mean, this is a broad generality, but I like to tell people that, that the police enforce statutes, mm-hmm. the defense enforces the constitution. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, we're in there making sure that the the, the government meets their burdens, that they uh, approve that they don't uh, conduct illegal searches uh, that, you know, we're the ones that have to hold their feet to the fire uh, and, and make them accountable for for conduct. Otherwise, we'd have a police state. And so uh, it's it is an important job. And it's important to to look at these kinds of cases to make sure that that happens.
0: And really, thanks to uh, Barry Sheck and Peter Newfield and the Innocence Project and all the DNA evidence that has been attacked over the years, we're, we're really seeing this come full circle.
2: Right, and people are starting to adjust their thinking uh, about things like the death penalty that's certainly uh, come up in California. Uh, and at, because of all these exonerations, I think people are starting to feel uneasy about the, uh, the fact that the criminal justice system uh, doesn't always get it right. And and when you start uh, executing people uh, just like, destroying evidence in their case, uh, you eliminate the possibility of, of ever determining whether or not they were innocent.
0: Exactly. And, you know, and, and, you know, thank goodness that Bill McCumber uh, case wasn't a death penalty case. It could have been.
2: That's yeah. right. It, it's that double-edged sword that I was sort of talking about. If, if it had been a death penalty case, uh, his evidence would have been preserved. And some of this new testing could have been done.
3: Yeah. On the
2: other, On the other hand, uh, you know, it's taking, you know, 20-25 years from the point of conviction to execution. So in theory, uh, he would have, could have been executed back in, yeah. you know, the late 80s, um, early 90s before even uh, today's DNA. For example, uh, is is such so so he still could have wound up being wrongly executed. Right. And, yeah. <laughs> yes, it, it is a double edged sword.
0: And that has happened to people where they've been executed and then later found out that they were uh, factually innocent.
2: Right. Right. Yeah.
0: Amazing story. Um, just uh, uh, if anybody wants to read about this story, if you want to Google Justice Arizona Justice Project, the whole story is up there. The jury never heard of confessions of a third party uh if it hadn't been for this wonderful judge who had who was ethical and had a conscience and carried this with him for years uh this probably would have never come as far as it has um so good job rich and arizona justice project gets a lot of credit for tackling this and i guess you guys are still really working on it
3: because
2: yeah uh, there is a petition that can be filed uh uh the governor had rejected the one clemency uh, petition we actually went back to the clemency board with a few months ago and uh and didn't get through that particular review uh and um and so there is a post conviction petition that's going to be filed to uh we don't know you know how far that'll go whether Bill's health will hold up long enough for this to be litigated and so it's it is an ongoing process and there is a book being written about this case uh, oh is there yeah there's a, a professor uh, out of uh, uh, California who is a literary professor former journalist in fact who has uh, been working on a book. I don't know what the status of that is so oh. if it's released but uh, but it's but he was particularly interested in in this case as well
0: well this is this is great, and I hope you keep uh, keep me informed of it maybe we can have a follow up if he can actually sure. get out yeah that would be great. Well, we're almost ready to close our show. I want to mention a couple of upcoming conferences. June seventh to the ninth is the National Association of Legal Investigators having their annual conference in Chicago, Illinois, at the Avenue Crown Plaza, Chicago Man- Magnificent Mile. And then, if you want information on this event, go to Online, which is n a l i o n l i n e dot org, n N-A-L-I-O-N-L-I-N-E. a l i o n l-i-n-e dot org. And then, uh, June 28th to the 30th is the West Coast Super Conference presented by PI Magazine at the Weston Hotel San Diego. And for information on this event, you can go to www.cali-pi, cali-pi dot org. And that is the 28th to the 30th. So, uh, June is Private Investigator Conference Month, I guess, <laughs> and these are both great conferences. National Association of Legal Investigators is an association of people who do uh, criminal defense, investigators who do criminal defense, plaintiff personal injury uh, for the most part, and the uh, California Association of Licensed Investigators is a state association that um, accepts all investigators, similar to yours, right. Arizona, That's does right. that as well? Okay. Yep. All right, so please check these out if you have an interest. And uh, again, uh, thank you, Rich. Uh, great story, interesting journey you, you've taken, and I appreciate you being on the show today.
2: Yeah, thanks, Francie.
0: Okay, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's P.I.'s Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening.